It's like I had been swept off the deck of the cruise ship that was my life by an invisible wave. I was overwhelmed by icy black waters. Then eventually waves of understanding crashed into me, orienting me in this ocean of the unknown. Hello, welcome to another episode of It's Pronounced Memoir, a podcast where we read celebrity memoirs and tell you what to think about them. If you appreciate this time-saving hack, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. This week, we're discussing No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful by model and Instagram weeper, Polina Poroskova. My name is Mariana Olenko. Joining me, as always, are my good, bad, and beautiful co-hosts, Anne Imig and Wendy Ahrens. Now, Anne and Wendy, looking at the title of the memoir, No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful, which of these words best describes you? Anne? I am torn between and and the. <laughs> Damn, thanks for taking my joke. Ah, <laughs> oh, we think too much alike. But if you had to narrow it down to just one, this is not bad, beautiful, and greedy. Wendy? Well, I would say... Um, I would be bad because the first thing I did when I read the title was like, oh, God, she ripped off Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, then went into like film nerd territory. Nobody likes a film nerd, so I'll own it. I'll own the bad. But yet she called herself the beautiful instead of the ugly because come on. Come on. The word I relate to the most is beautiful. And that is because this is an audio medium and you can't see me. <laughs> I did initially choose the word the also, but then I had to pivot. Amazing speed. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So here's some content warnings for today's episode. Grief, divorce, cancer, death, multi-million dollar SD Lauder contract, <laughs> and excessive water metaphors that crash at the shore of the reading experience. Okay. It's hard to follow that water poke by saying, let's dive in. But I think it's in the podcaster's bill of rights that every podcast has to start like that. So please don't report me to Podcast Central. Wendy, before reading this memoir, what did you know about Paulina? Well, I know that she's gotten recent fame, I guess, for showing it all on Instagram without makeup as a 58-year-old woman and how brave that is, blah, blah, blah. But growing up, I knew her as the pretty crying model in the Cars video because MTV played it nonstop. And how about you? I just remember her from fashion magazines. I don't even remember her from the Cars video. So she's known for being a big model in the 1980s and 90s. In 1984, Paulina was on the cover of a Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue at the age of 18 and became just the second woman to be featured on consecutive covers. The first woman was Christy Brinkley. She was also chosen by People magazine as one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world in 1990 and 1992. I don't know what happened in 1991, but I'm glad she pulled herself together. She bloated um, that year. Yeah. I even looked up if her children were born that year, but no. Oh, yeah. Day. You Disgusting. Know, Gross. <laughs> Do either of you remember what her last name means? Uh, dumpling house. She says that her last name is hard to translate, but roughly speaking, it means the one who belongs to a large man that eats a lot. I don't know why that's hard to translate. <laughs> that seems like such a common 
common name in Czechoslovakia. Fact. <laughs> so Polina was born in Czechoslovakia in 1965. She writes that when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, her parents saw a life of menial jobs ahead and decided to risk their young, beautiful lives to escape that fate on a motorcycle. And they decided to escape this fate without Paulina. They thought they could come back, but then the Iron Curtain came down and they could not get Paulina back. So Paulina, until she was about seven or eight, was raised by her grandmother, which she says was some of the happiest moments of her life. She writes, I may have been growing up under communism's heavy hand, wearing cast off clothing and waiting in endless lines with my Bobby for a single banana at Christmas, but I still consider my childhood the happiest years of my life. The outside deprivation of material things was not at all important to my happiness. My Bobby loved me unconditionally and I was safe. Did you find this part of the book moving? Sure. I mean, okay, so not dead inside. Part. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Her childhood just gets more and more like weird and disturbing. All the while, she thinks her parents have left her because her ears are so large. Uh, yeah. That could have been a secondary reason. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I just kept thinking how far it would be. Her parents rode a motorcycle from Czechoslovakia to Sweden. So I had to look at a map because I'm like, is there an ocean in there? Maybe there isn't. I don't know. Did you look at a map? Was there, was an, there ocean? an ocean? <laughs> what ocean did you think would be between no, Czechoslovakia and Sweden? Went to a North Dakota public school. Known, I don't know. One of the lesser known oceans. I'm only laughing so, because I don't want you to call on me about this. Okay, continue. <laughs> so her parents staged a hunger strike in front of the Czech embassy in Stockholm. Paulina said that they had no connections to money, fame, or power, but they were young, photogenic, and very sad. I know this part is not supposed to be funny, but I just love that combination of young, <laughs> photogenic, and very sad. With the help of the Swedish newspapers, Paulina's mother tried to kidnap Paulina to bring her back to Sweden, but she was caught and imprisoned. Like this whole part of the book could have taken up like half, three quarters of the book instead of the, what I will call the musings, but we'll um, get to that. Like, this is a lot. This is a lot. Eventually, what happened is the Czech government tired of the terrible publicity. Polina writes that her family's plight caused a scandal when the Swedish hockey team threatened to refuse to play the Czechs in 1972. And so the Czech government ejected Polina and her mother. Their citizenship was revoked, and we were told never to return. Tragically, I don't think she's seen her grandmother ever again. So Paulina leaves to go to Sweden to meet her father. Well, it was harrowing, like talking about how just growing up under communism and how her mom didn't really comply. Like she played music that was forbidden from the radio really loudly and she was so little and you were supposed to report any sort of infraction, whether it was a thought or a word and how she never reported her mom, but she could have and how the little kids would report on each other. But it was chilling to read. It was chilling. And she said her mother listened to Radio Free Europe, which was forbidden. And Paulina was terrified that somebody would report her mother. And then later on, when she talks about having an anxiety disorder, I momentarily became a therapist and said, 
Well, this is probably where it could have started, like that horrible oh, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and how she, uh, like, she loved being with her grandmother. And that's why the happiest time of her life, because she was safe and contained. And I think she liked following the rules, kind of. Or but she also did, your, she parents, did okay. your parents leaving and not coming back, even if there's a totally understandable and legitimate reason, changes you during those sure. formative years. Yeah, I would For like sure. to see my parents tearing out of town on a motorcycle, though. Through the ocean, <laughs> no less. The newspapers in Sweden celebrated her release, and the headlines were something along the lines of poor little Paulina is finally happily reunited with her parents, but in Swedish. The first night in Sweden, after she meets her father, her father thinks that she and her brother are asleep and tells her mother that he's in love with someone else and is leaving her. <laughs> Not funny, but that can happen you can when you're locked up. away for a while. Yeah. 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 She really should have thought this through her mother. Yeah. The mother is very upset, I guess, very sensitive. I don't know what's going on with that. But Polina thinks, oh, good, I can go back to my grandmother, which I kind of love because it's such a kid thing to do. And it's so real because her mother was her home and sense of security. This was completely foreign to her. It's honestly mm -hmm. like kidnapping victims in reverse. Like when you hear about when a child who's been kidnapped actually gets reunited with their family, it's not a happy. Yeah. story. There's a Stockholm it's... joke in here, a Stockholm syndrome joke in here somewhere. <laughs> well, as the Swedish descendant, please make it. It's Norwegian. Thank you. Oh, but yeah. Stockholm is in Norway? Oh, no. <laughs> I literally <laughs> just spit out my water. It's across oh, the you're ocean. Norwegian. Across the ocean. Across I'm Norwegian. The ocean from Norway. You're oh, Norwegian. I thought, yes. Anne, you were saying that you're suddenly, for today's episode, Swedish. <laughs> well, that's because I'm so blonde. Hey, chapter two. No, this is so a geography she... ball now. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, I'm going to throw in a new country. Oh, God. At 15, she moves to Paris to model. Do we know how she was discovered? I assume it was somebody with eyesight. But other than that, it just sort of happened, right? Well, well I mean, it was a what was, was she nice. wearing situation, but not one you might think where she had saved worked and saved to finally get fashionable clothes because she'd always had like hand-me-downs and she felt so awesome going into school like cute look she wasn't going to be the big nerd anymore and then she ran into those girls in the bathroom I mean this was like straight out of an after school special yeah and they yeah. gave her a swirly and they were like Oh, and then it changed her from nerd to whore. They called her like a whore. Yeah. <laughs> I love the part when she's in Paris and her phone rings and it's some guy from Topeka inviting her to go to a prom. And she's like, yeah, sure. What do what does one wear to a prom? And he's like, well, I think girls wear nice dresses. And she's like, okay. And then he's like, okay, so you'll be here at seven? How back then would he able to find her phone number? That was so bizarre to me. I know it was completely bizarre, but mm -hmm. since then she travels under a different name and her phone number is unlisted. So if anybody mm -hmm. wants to ask her to, she was probably just like to. in the phone book under P. I don't know. It was weird. Maybe he called um, the track down the modeling agency. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. And she was talking so, about how she, the only reason she said no is just sharing how you really didn't get paid because the agencies 
charged you so many fees in advance. Like they paid for your travel and they paid for your styling and all this stuff. So models barely made any money. And that was the context when she's like, oh, well, I can't fly to Topeka because I don't have the money. And I'm <laughs> that was kind of where she realized I won't be going to prom. In Topeka, because there's an ocean involved also. <laughs> the um, motorcycle some... wasn't going to go that far. No, no. There's some weird stuff about the creepy photographers. They're not all nice. I was no, surprised. The modeling agency has some scandalous characters. Who wants to talk about the shoulder? And Lena Well, I will. I'm gonna if you remember the song Zippity Doo Da, Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder. But this would be Mr. <laughs> Mr. Photographer's penis on my shoulder. It's a fact. She had never seen a penis before. And we're saying the word penis. So I guess maybe we have to have a rating for this now. But it's um, not a bad word. No. And Anatomical. this particular one really showed her descriptive writing. Does anyone have a have the quote handy? Hmm. <laughs> I would just looked up Let's how to say see. penis in French and love is like an ocean. Le penis. Le penis. Le penis. But yeah, she was getting her makeup applied and all of a sudden there's a slump on her shoulder and she thinks it's mashed potatoes stuffed in pantyhose, which would be the logical conclusion I would come to right away, right? And what on earth <sighs> possesses a man. I guess that was a culture. Okay, I will read this wonderful Thank quote. You. I watched in the mirror as the photographer sidled up behind me and placed something warm and yielding on my shoulder. Oh, gag. I kept That's smiling. That's her first words, warm and yielding. I Which kept wasn't smiling. wasn't hot and stiff. <laughs> I kept smiling. The thing on my shoulder looked like a large brown flower in the reflection. I got a whiff of something food-like soup like come on oh, a soft heavy pretzel pantyhose <laughs> stuffed with mashed potatoes a soft heavy pretzel on my shoulder finally i turned my head to look at it directly and realized it was attached to his body attached to the part of his body where a penis would be it rested there casually nestled between my collarbone and the side of my neck why would she use the word nestled? Nestled. But oh, casually. Hello, Oh, let's not. Well, I had seen photos and illustrations of penises in health and biology classes at school, but I had never seen a real penis before, and certainly not one held up right next to my face. Could it be? So, but you know, like everybody else is laughing and she feels like she has now to. Oh, it's ghastly. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Yes. And it was just an example of how you have no autonomy, you have no control over your person as a model, and you just have to grin right. and bear it. I would have and liked, because she talks about the indignities and all of the stuff like that that went on when she was a very young model. And uh, I would have liked to hear how that changed when she was getting six million dollars a year from Estee Lauder was she treated better was there still this ickiness mm. going on I would have liked to see a little before and after yeah like when she was a known name and that she could yeah. command her rate did they treat her better that's an excellent point 
she meets Rick Ocasek when they're filming an MTV video. She says that falling in love is a bit like having a temporary mental illness. They start dating. It's very adorable. She asks him to tell her something secret about himself, a little confidential snippet that only she would know. Who remembers what he told her? That he's married and have other kids. (laughs) Yes, he's married. He's 21 years older. He's 21 years older than her. Yeah. Fun. This is a fun game. Yeah. He tells her that he's married, but then he says something like, don't worry. If it weren't for the darkness, we wouldn't see the stars. And she's like, wow, that's a really good point. (laughs) I'm going to save that for my memoir. He loved me so completely. He didn't want to share me with anyone else. I became his obsession for the first time in my life. I felt wholly desired. Now I get an impression that he's a dick. Not on her shoulder, but like he is, he doesn't want her to have any friends. He makes her get rid of her gay friends because as he says, they will turn straight for you. And she goes along with it because she feels love is the most important thing. But also she's, I think, like 19, you know? Yeah. Well, this is was one of my problems with the book is they sound like they were a pair of dicks on no one's shoulders. Um, and that she would have continued to be a dick, except for he stopped being interested in her like decades later. She talks about how judgmental they were of other people, how they created this little world where they were the most fabulous. And I was just so turned off. She had me in the beginning with this like very difficult childhood. But as she's relaying this, it really left me with like, you guys were assholes. And the only reason it reminds me of that whole thing of um, what I think is wrong with this country of people don't empathize unless it happens to them personally. And that's how I felt like I I got that feeling from this book. Like in retrospect, she sees they were assholes, but they sounded like assholes. Yeah. Well, like you have a a big rock star and a famous model. It would be weird if they weren't. True. But I think she truly loved him. She truly believed he was beautiful. But there were complications in their marriage, like the whole thing about the money. He didn't want to have a prenup. And I'm not sure who would have benefited more from one because he said, well, if we get a prenup, it just means we're thinking of divorce. But he's already been divorced twice by that point. And she says that she didn't consider it. And just the way she surrendered herself completely that was hard to read. Yeah. Their ban- business manager being his business manager. And then all of the money that she made just going who knows where and was totally discounted. That was very hard to read. Yeah. And then it always seemed like the money she earned was almost like play money. And he was the real breadwinner. And then do you remember when um, she was aging out of modeling, it became clear that they couldn't live just on his income. And so they had to start making cutbacks. So she and the children flew an economy while he still flew business (laughs) class. Oh, God. Awful. I cannot, you know, and then I thought, well, maybe because he's so tall, but she's pretty tall, too. Yeah. And I think their kids are you know, up there too. When she was 20, she signed a contract with Estee Lauder. I think she was the face of Estee Lauder. And as Wendy mentioned, I I did some research and I, I believe the contract was $6 million, which, you know, 30 years ago is like 800,000 million today, approximately. And when she was interviewed, somebody, the interviewer asked her, what is the responsibility of beauty? And that question really stumps her. 
And what has your experience been? What is <laughs> my responsibility of beauty? Yes. Um, How do you handle your beauty in this world? Well, for a long time, the $8 root touch-up kit was really working <laughs> for me. And I'm really pissed that that's no longer working for me. Yeah. Did you have to upgrade to like a $9 touch-up kit? Sharpie? I, I, I'm still in between. I, I don't, I mean, we'll come back to this. We get into her <laughs> long musings about aging and I'll tell you how that all sat with me, but we're not there yet. Okay. So then let me see. She wants to be desired. I'm looking at my notes. The story about Rick Ocasek that I loved is when they go to the supermarket and she sees the National Enquirer and there's a photograph of them and it says Beauty and the Beast. And she like she's so hurt and she's like, why do people do this? It's so hurtful, blah, blah, blah. And she wants to hide it from him, but he knows something is wrong. So she finally tells him she shows it to him. And he says to her, oh, sweetheart, don't worry. I don't really think you're a beast. I thought that, that was, was very funny. It was very adorable. That, that was their, uh, their prevailing narrative about the two of them for their entire relationship was how are they together? Look at her and look at him. Kind of the Julia Roberts, uh, Lyle Lovett thing. But that I remember that was always the headline, like, what does she see in him or, you know. And the book didn't answer the question for me. It did for me. I mean, I think she really, like he's, she said he's the most beautiful person she's ever seen. She truly loved him. And I'm in his weirdo possessive, let me dress you, don't do any nude photography way. Mm -hmm. He loved her too, but. It's just almost as if she experiences love through a chimney. Okay, please explain that. <laughs> it's could, metaphor time. If I could, I would. Wendy, please explain that. The writing in this is very tortured at times. It's she, um, I think she is probably a deep person and she tries to express that or a ghostwriter tries to express that in the book. And she has pages about how her most kids, if they draw a picture of a house, they'll try to get in through the front door. You know, that's, you know, they're idea of a house is you get in through the front door and if that doesn't work you get in through the windows and then it's all about how she would get into the chimney and that's how she falls in love and approaches love is through the chimney and that just just kind of confused me and made me think of santa claus the whole time so i i didn't and the relate chimney to that is part. long and slender like rick yeah Ocasek. like rick okay and her and it's full of suit soot like him mm, because i make up I just, I just uh, that to me, and she did this a few times in the book where she has a fascinating life and I'm sure a gazillion anecdotes, but then she wanders off into this weird tortured metaphor story or, you know, it's like somebody telling you about their dream last night where you're like, um, the, the water metaphors now that we waded into those waters were <laughs> unbearable to me. I mean, I, I liked Paulina a lot in this memoir and I also um like I didn't sense their assholeness because I'm not that sensitive of a reader but when she kept talking about like floating in the ocean and then there are waves and rocks and I and it just kept coming at me like nonstop in several places I was feeling a little waterlogged I have to tell you I think that she is smart but mm -hmm. the way she wants to prove it 
constantly. Like she said, when she was modeling, she wanted to make sure she didn't fall behind in school. So she got the reading list and read all the books. Therefore, I'm smart. I'm like, no, that's that's not how it works. But um, anyway, was there, I know I'm skipping a lot. What Yet not really. In, Yet not really. <laughs> well, were there some themes that caught your interest and attention that we didn't cover yet? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'll say, because I wrote a book about aging myself, and Pauline is just a couple years older than me. So I was fascinated how she and I kind of address the same topics, but in such a different way about seeing yourself as you get, um, you know, you don't recognize yourself in the mirror anymore coming into your own power in a way and speaking up for yourself and, you know, just all of that growth. I think she's a hundred percent a feminist, but I think she's just kind of realized that as of late. And I think the death of Rick and him cutting her out of his will really um, made her self-realize or you just get to be a stronger, more outspoken person. So I, I see that trajectory a lot with women our age when they talk about their lives and starting as kind of a, a quiet, shy, I never got a swirly, but quiet, shy, <laughs> and just, you know, kind of going along for the ride or letting other people control your life. And now she's kind of on the other side of that, I think. So I, I related to all of that. We did skip I, over the whole being cut out of the will piece. That was the Yeah. All right. Let me catch up on that. So she and Rick are no longer together romantically. I mean, this is years ago before he died. And she has a boyfriend that she really loves, but she and Rick are still close. They still live in the same house, but I believe on different floors. They're very good friends. They have meals together. He has cancer surgery, but he was it was stage zero cancer and he was supposed to have been fine. And then she discovers him dead in his bed one morning, which of course is devastating, you know, for her, for her sons. It was a, a very big loss. And, and she finds he had been out, dating too, right? Like she had ever, I believe to think so. That this was a mutual arrangement. Oh yes. They were, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And she says she doesn't name the boyfriend she had at the time, but she said that he had met Rick and the kids. Like it was all, out in the open. And so when his will is read, he is cuts her out of the will. I don't think completely, but almost. And the the will was written shortly before his death. And it said, I'm not leaving anything to my wife because she abandoned me. And she is devastated. Um, she's mourning the loss of her husband and she's also she's grieving but she also feels a tremendous sense of betrayal so she has to sue i believe his estate and her own children who were some of the beneficiaries along with his older children to to get some money because they have two homes but they're heavily mortgaged they have tax debts and do you remember she says that um she wrote that she knew she would like figure out the financials, but she was devastated that he said that she abandoned him. Um, do you remember how to cure syphilis? Again, like why that was such a weird thing. She writes about curing the, I guess a treatment for syphilis is to get catch malaria on top of it because the high fever will knock the syphilis out of your body. She said like oh. the duality of grief and heartbreak 
or betrayal, like one was syphilis and the other was malaria. So and we were all like, oh, exactly, Paulina. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> we're right with her. Yeah. Um, but and then she has to sell one of her houses and she's devastated. She thinks she's gonna move in with this boyfriend, unnamed boyfriend, and he basically tells her as the movers are pulling stuff away, like, yeah, I don't think so. Like he breaks so up cool. with her. And that is, again, like, I don't understand this kind of a relationship where somebody does that to somebody. Well, like, in fairness so to the guy, though, oh, he, it's horrible. But she also said, like, he couldn't have been clearer the whole time that he wasn't interested in that. So that is also, like, it's so horrible that he left her. And she talks about, like, he never gave her any indication that he was going to commit to her. So it's also But I just- thought she... I thought they already moved her stuff into his place. Oh, I mean, you're it, it was right. Just... They did. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Is this where she starts talking about diarrhea? Oh, God. Yes. Seeing her bowels and her tights. <laughs> well, which was a dream, I think. Right. I don't remember. It was a that, good. But... This was a. This was an effective analogy, though. Can mm-hmm. you share it with us? Well, I can't quote it, but <laughs> just that, like, when you're grieving, I think what she was saying is this kind of grief. You can't hold it together. It's like somebody knocking on the door if you've got like a stomach parasite and asking when you're going to be done. I'm going to hazard a uh, just an opinion that I don't think she should ever come out with a metaphors about grieving book. But she did tell us that she read a lot of books about the grief process and betrayal. And she said that the best advice she read in the book was that to rename the person who's causing you the heartbreak so she renamed her ex-boyfriend as Mr. Emotionally Unavailable on her phone and that made her feel better oh right so every time you see like yeah like if you get a text or a call it comes up as Mr. Emotionally Unavailable instead of the person's name Mm -hmm. that's kind of an interesting hack so I, this is where I share my story. I had a great grandmother whose name weirdly was also Paulina. And she, through the generations, passed her hack for getting over heartbreak that my mother shared with me. And that is you're supposed to take the picture of the person, rip it up into tiny pieces, put it in the toilet and then poop on top of it. And then as you flush, <laughs> say, where the poop goes, so does he. That is very oh, specific Paulina protocol. would love that. She, she would, would love, love it. it. This is from Mother Russia. And, you know, I've never done it, but every friend who was going through heartbreak and I would tell them this, they it really cheered them up. <laughs> I could see that. I think you need to do a it's, video. It's harder now when we don't have print photos. So I don't know like how you like print it off Instagram. I don't know what the kids are doing these days. But, you know, I just want to share this with the with the public. It's a service that you're providing. It's a service. Mm-hmm. I just changed our group chat to Mrs. Emotionally Unavailable. <laughs> just, I think it will help me. It will help you. <laughs> All right. Um, remember when she was in Buenos Aires as her marriage to Rick was falling apart and she meets, she sees a palm reader. And the question she asks the palm reader is, will a man ever find me attractive again? Okay. It's like 55. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a little younger even. And like, mm-hmm. what do you think the palm reader is thinking other than Dios mio, caramba? <laughs> Ay, caramba. 
Like, she I doesn't mean, say, will I find love? Will I be happy? Will a man ever find me desirable again? God. <laughs> well, this goes, this goes to what, again, drove me nuts about this book is I have it open right now on page 206. And it's like a love letter to women aging in our faces. Like, I love okay. the 11s between your eyebrows. They make you look like a woman of deep thought. Your crow's feet, they are maps of laughter. The lines across your forehead are a reminder of every bit of excitement and delight. The creepy, so creepy soft skin, <laughs> creepy and creepy, that gathers on your belly and your legs and arms. Think of it as a rumpled silk sheets on the bed in the morning. And she's very convincing. I know she believes this, but then she, she goes, like the next, there's like that space. The next section starts with, why can't I feel the same way about my own face? And it just reminds me of how we're all susceptible to this. Like, we all love gray hair on someone else. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, we can all tell our friend, like, and mean it. Oh, your aging looks beautiful. And then when we look in the mirror ourselves, it's a different story, right? And she and she talks openly about having Botox and everything else. And yes, it is brave that she does these no makeup selfies, but she's also Paulina Porskova, who's had work done and looks better than 99.9% .9 of us ever will. She's going to be gorgeous when she's 80 or 100. And so that started to drive me crazy. Like, I believe she believes it, but she's not in with us, the aging masses. No, like, she's, she's not. She's not one of us. She never will be. Um, speak for yourself. <laughs> Remember, my word is beautiful. I mean, it, it, I guess you could get like deep into the psychology of it, that even though she's made her millions and millions of dollars based on her looks, she still doesn't accept that she is that person, that she's one of the most beautiful women in the world, you know, in uh, that she just doesn't think she's lovable. Right. Uh, You're I'm right. doing a Fraser Crane here, but yeah. You're right. <laughs> to be that famous, first of all, to for your face, for your looks is something that, well, except for Mariana, that most of us can't relate to exactly um, at that level. And then to lose it and what that would feel like, it's just like most of the world has problems that are. Yeah. I mean, she looks gorgeous. If you, she, she has a huge Instagram following now and she's happily in love with some TV writer. I mean, I don't think I could love somebody that wrote for Will and Grace, but that's the difference between us. <laughs> uh, so she's, you know, I, I think that that newfound relevance came after the divorce, right? When she got onto Instagram and got really vulnerable. And that's what led to her writing this book. She gets noticed by... for being the crying woman. So she got noticed like out at a restaurant. And at first she thought it was, of course, because she's Paulina, but then it was no, because she's the crying woman that meant so much to everybody on Instagram. And I mean, I'm giving her a lot of shit. I think she's an authentic person who is honest about her struggles and has been through a lot. But I got to tell you, I remember very little from the musings portion of this book, which was a great big part of the book. There was some skimming, yes. Oh, there was? I didn't skim anything. Okay. Um, Show off, class pet. She talks about her anxiety, that she's always suffered from anxiety, when even when she was a little child. And she said that people who suffer from anxiety are divided into two. Some people are afraid that they're going to die and others think that they're going crazy. And she, um, she always thought she was going to die. She had diagnosed herself with arrhythmia at some point when she was reading her mother's 
medical books her mother was studying to be a nurse. So at some point, Paulina sees a therapist who prescribes Lexapro and she feels tremendous relief. And I was thinking, oh, this is great. She's going to normalize antidepressants, anti-anxiety, right? And then what does she do? Like, she's like, oh, I couldn't really feel, I couldn't really love. But she she doesn't completely throw it under the motorcycle. She still says like it helps people. She talks about how many of her friends said, oh, yes, me too, for different for different reasons. One, because she had anger, another depression, somebody else had anxiety. But I think she talks about it as like women in midlife crisis, unlike men, women mm-hmm. get Botox and antidepressants and men get expensive cars and younger women who are, don't have Botox and antidepressants. Yeah, I don't know what to think about that. I don't either. I don't either. But I think it's important to say that we are thinking about it and to prove that we read the book. <laughs> yes, but like I, like I said, she seems like a, a nascent, is that like brand new uh, feminist? Like she had never had these thoughts before. So uh, I'm not using the W word here, but she just seems like, you know, she just took um, oh. Women's Studies 101 and she's filled with all of these insights and why aren't women being treated like this? And uh, so, and I think that's all good, but I think the way it's written is like, it's these, you know, grand declarations and insights. And it's like, it, to me, it felt more lightweight than something profound. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, if yeah. she wasn't forced to make these realizations by becoming unemployed because she had to become more of a human. I mean, aging is the one common denominator. That's the one bias that no one can get out of. And so I feel like the lessons mean a little bit less when they come out of those circumstances instead of somebody who hasn't had to experience something personally to care about it. Is there anything else anybody wanted to say? Because I wanted to talk about the acknowledgments. Wait, do you want want to... um... I was going to make a, are you, are you swimming into the acknowledgement section? Just yes. dipping a toe, just dipping a toe. Like a river. <laughs> well, before I get out of the ocean of this podcast and towel off, <laughs> there was something that was in the acknowledgements that really puzzled me. She said, when I was offered to write a book in three months, it was a challenge I wasn't sure I was capable of. So what was happening in the world that there was this three month deadline for her to write a book? Well, it's, it's Maria Shriver's imprint. Right. So my only guess is Maria Shriver screwed up somewhere along the line and was like, Oh crap, I need to get this book out to the stores. I promise. I don't know. Something like that. Um, I, I, I think it was probably a publishing thing. Which okay. is, yeah. Cause usually it's like a two year process. Yeah. If it's a major publisher. So that was imagine, that, that. Yeah. Imagine what she could have done if she had more time. And mm-hmm. then she worked with Carrie Egan. I don't know if she was her ghostwriter. She said she was my reader and critic and teacher. I don't know Carrie Egan, but I looked her up and apparently she's a Harvard Divinity School educated hospice chaplain. Well, there's mm-hmm. a blurb from Ann Patchett right on the front, a book about a rare life, profound love, profound grief, anxiety, self-assurance, empowerment, aging, loss, and joy. I guess those aren't exactly ringing testimonials. but I think I enjoyed hearing that blurb more oh, than I did the inside of the book. I did like this book. I like that 
that passage and that you read about how much she thinks we're all beautiful with our 11s. Yeah, that was cringy for sure. Not your reading, just the way it was written. But I think she has a really amazing life story. I remember her as being this completely stunning model. Yeah. Um, gorgeous and interesting insight for me to see the person behind that. I think she's well-intentioned. I mean, she does, she comes off as somebody I would want to know. Probably not be photographed like in a group shot <laughs> with her. The thinking model. The preface was really intriguing and got me kind of excited because it teased the big revelation of her husband leaving her out of the will. But then the pace of the book did not deliver. But when you think about the three month time frame, like it it totally makes sense. That's why it seems like there was some filler in there. Like you said, the musings, because Mm -hmm. she certainly has had an interesting enough life. She didn't talk about her sons very much, which is maybe their request didn't want to talk about it's like what was it like when you had young babies what were you doing and maybe there was just a lot of chronological history that I would like to see well that sort of answers my question is there anything you wish had been included in the book other than photographs which is again yeah very strange that there weren't any for somebody who's a model no she couldn't find any it's just to me it's not very memorable so I think maybe when you're going to read a celebrity memoir you want to hear more about the celebrity and those are the pieces that I remember and find interesting rather than the musings the musings and I would have liked her to maybe now that she was looking back on all of this some more solid reflections like instead of me having to play armchair psychiatrist like her saying this is why I'm feeling this way. Or maybe I didn't have a father. So that's why I went with somebody like Rick who was controlling and, you know, I mean, that's psychology 101. So I would have maybe liked her to put all of that into perspective and uh, finally more model stories. There just weren't enough of that. Yeah. Those would have been good. Those would have been great. All right. Well, I think that wraps up another episode of It's Pronounced Memoir. I forgot what the podcast was called for a second. It's called It's Pronounced Portskova. Oh, good one. That means oh. that means a large eating man is holding us, right? Cue the music. Cue the music. Cue the music. <laughs> Bye. 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 He destroyed the girl I was and left something remarkable in her place. A woman. The old me drowned to make room for an amphibious creature. One who could move between water and air, pain and joy, with the understanding she was flexible enough to inhabit both. Perhaps a mermaid. It felt like my head was stuck in a Swedish public school toilet, like water swirled around my face and covered my ears, mouth, and nose. My hopes and dreams were flushed and swirling the drain.